Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric, and I'll be reading you selections from the e-edition of today's Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Wednesday, August 9th of 2023. We'll start with the weather, as we always do. Today, less humid, with variable cloudiness, not nearly as rainy as yesterday. That was something. High of 85 expected today. Clear to partly cloudy in the overnight, with a low of 65. Tomorrow, Thursday, mostly sunny with thunderstorms around in the afternoon. High of 81, low of 70. A little bit of the humidity comes back. And again on Friday, same thing. Mostly sunny and humid, breezy in the afternoon. High of 83, low of 61. On Saturday, we'll have a high of 82, a low of 71. Be mostly sunny. Very nice day. Uh, Again, a little humid, but not too bad. And then on Sunday, straight thunderstorms, humidity, breezy in the afternoon, high of 85, low of 65, very much like today, in fact, on Sunday. So we have a nice weekend coming up. It's going to be warm, a little uncomfortable with humidity, but it will be pretty nice. Today, the sun rose at 5.43 a.m. It was lovely. I watched it. And it will set at 7.50 p.m. We will have 14 hours, 7 minutes of daylight. And the moon will set at 3.02 p.m. Heading to the front of the paper where the lottery results and the news is kept. And we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org or call us at 508-539-2030 and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org. And in the upper right corner is the archived readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings, as well as a wide variety of periodicals and literature. And that stays up there all the time. The newspaper readings stay up for a week, so you can catch up on anything that you might have missed. All of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org ledger.org, the archived readings tab up in the right corner. For the lottery results, which you asked for, so we want to give you the latest ones, we go to masslottery.com because the Cape Cod Times goes to press far too early to give you those late results, and you cared enough to ask, we care enough to give you the late results. So for the numbers game of Tuesday, August 8th, the midday drawing numbers were 4882. Again, yesterday's midday drawing numbers, 4882. In the evening drawing last night, in the numbers game for Tuesday, August 8th, last night's numbers were 2766. Again, last night's evening drawing numbers game results, 2766. Powerball results for Monday, August 7th, 61320. 35, and 54, with 22 the bonus number. Last night's mass cash numbers for Tuesday, August 8th, 2, 4, 8, 25, and 27. Mega Millions results for Tuesday, August 8th, last night, 13, 19, 20, 32, and 33, with 14 the bonus number. And finally, Lucky for Life rounds out our lottery results, 
for Tuesday, August 8th, 9, 11, 19, 36, and 45, with 13, the bonus number. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Now, heading to the Cape Cod Times cover, where we read our local news first, because that's what we do. You can get the other news elsewhere. And a picture on the cover. We don't do a lot of descriptor, uh, but uh, descriptions of pictures. But um, I had to drive through what was easily two feet of standing water, 10 or 12 different places uh, after an hour of rain yesterday. It was an insanely high flood situation. And if I had had my smaller convertible car, I would never have been able to um, make it off the Cape. So traffic trouble. Thunderstorms drench the Cape and leave flooded roadways. Boy, did they. This is reported by Eric Williams. A powerful weather system brought thunderstorms and pounding rain to Cape Cod Tuesday. During the midday, a tornado warning was in effect for parts of Barnstable County, but it appears the Cape avoided that frightening possibility. But a twister did touch down in Mattapoisett, just off Cape, according to the National Weather Service and the Boston Norton office. At about 1.30 p.m., the office issued the following statement on Facebook and Twitter. Confirmed. Tornado in Mattapoisett. A survey team has confirmed a tornado in Mattapoisett around 11.30 a.m. The survey team is still investigating damage and a more detailed statement on EF rating, start and end times, will be sent later today upon damage survey completion. According to the National Weather Service, the enhanced Fujita scale, or EF scale, is used to assign a tornado a rating based on estimated wind speeds and related damage. Andrew Lacanto, a meteorologist at the National Weather Service in the Boston Norton office, said tree damage had been reported in Barnstable, but it had yet to be determined if a survey team would investigate. According to Lacanto, radar estimated rainfall from the storm ranged from about an inch and a half in Yarmouth to around three inches in Mashpee and Falmouth. Lacanto said the most powerful part of the storm passed over western and central parts of Barnstable County. Boy, I was right in the middle of it. The rain caused flooding and traffic trouble around the Cape. Sean Finn, a Mass State Police trooper, reached by phone at the South Yarmouth Barracks, said officers were dealing with flooded roadways, accidents, disabled vehicles, and significant traffic backups after the storm. Shortly after 1 p.m. on Wednesday, the Eversource outage map indicated that several hundred Cape customers had lost power during the storm. The silver lining to the tumultuous weather is that the forecast heading into the weekend promises sunny days and warm temperatures. Here's the Hyannis forecast from the National Weather Service. Wednesday, mostly sunny, high near 82, west winds around 14 miles an hour. Wednesday night, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 68. West wind, 7 to 10 miles per hour. Thursday, slight chance of showers after 2 p.m., mostly sunny with a high near 82. Southwest wind, 7 to 11 miles per hour. A chance of precipitation is 20%. On Thursday night, a chance of showers and thunderstorms, mostly cloudy with a low around 67. Breezy with a south wind, 14 to 21 miles per hour, becoming westerly after midnight. Chance of precipitation, 50%. Friday, sunny with a high near 81. West winds, 11 to 15 miles an hour. Friday night, mostly clear with a low around 65. I know I'm repeating the weather that I already gave you, but it is important.
Um, west winds 7 to 10 miles an hour. And on Saturday, sunny with a high near 80. Southwest winds 6 to 11 miles per hour. And I'm sorry I repeated so much of that information. I wasn't aware that that's what they were going to have. Another forecast in there. Drinking water for town is viewed safe. PFAS contamination is the headline. Hyannis Airport is legally responsible for the plume by Walker Armstrong. Representatives of Cape Cod Gateway Airport told local residents that they're doing all they can to halt the spread of per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, or PFAS, that are coming from its property and threatening a source of drinking water. PFAS, which are called forever chemicals because they stay in the environment, were the subject of a public meeting Monday at Barnstable Town Hall. For many residents, groundwater is their primary concern, since a known PFAS plume has sunk into the soil on airport property, into the groundwater, and it's drifted into the path of a water well within the Mar filtration plant system, which provides areas in Hyannis with drinking water. One resident raised her hand during the presentation and asked if the water is safe to drink. Yes, said Brian Massa, the evening's presenter from Horsley Witten Group, which is the environmental consultant at the helm of the airport's cleanup efforts. The town has an expansive drinking water filtration system that provides drinking water that meets the state's regulatory limit. It's providing safe drinking water for the town. The airport has identified a plume that's traveling southeast from the southeast portion of its property, underneath Yarmouth Road, and has entered into the town of Yarmouth's municipal boundary just north of Main Street. While a known PFAS plume has been identified as originating from the airport itself, largely due to the use of a commonplace fire extinguishing foam, Massa said in his presentation that the company's identified plumes from several other sources. Some, like the plume issuing from the Barnstable County Fire Training Academy, are a known source of PFAS contamination. Others, Massa said, are still unknown. The airport's plume goes maybe 30 to 40 feet into the groundwater and it's getting pulled up by the Mar Wells, Massa said. But that there's impacts 100 feet deep that originate even before the airport, meaning there's a big PFAS issue in this area. The airport's cleanup efforts involve installing caps between contaminated soil and groundwater. The caps are thick, PFAS free plastic tarps that prevent groundwater from infiltrating into the contaminated soil on and around the areas where the airport's plume has been identified. The airport basically cut off the plume by capping the source. They capped the two PFAS source areas so there's no continued leaching, Massa said. Massa said the airport is legally responsible for dealing with its relatively small plume. The PFAS plumes coming from other sources, like the Fire Training Academy, are the responsibility of others. The airport's plume and another plume are stacked on top of each other, and then there's other intermixed plumes, Massa said. The airport's plume is sitting on top of a much larger plume. There are no legally enforceable limits for PFAS regulation. There are currently no legally enforceable limits for regulating PFAS in drinking water, despite the risks to human and animal health. Massa said the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is still in the process of making PFOA and PFOS a hazardous substance. The EPA does cover two common types of PFAS, perfluorooctanoic acid, PFOA, and perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, PFOS-S. 
The Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection, on the other hand, identifies six common types for its drinking water standard. Katie Service, airport general manager, said in an interview with the Times that the firefighting foams containing PFAS are currently required by the FAA. As such, they were required to perform annual training drills, which they have since stopped, where they sprayed the foam. Since about 2014, the airport has been responding to PFAS, service said, and since 2015, we ceased the type of operations that we were doing that were contributing to PFAS being put on the ground. Currently, the FAA has no alternatives in terms of PFAS-free solutions for fire retardants. Massa said the airport has only had to use those foams twice for aircraft emergencies, in 1981 and 2016. Even PFAS-free foams have PFAS in them, Massa said. Residents offered their thoughts on airport's presentation. In the meeting, several residents from the town of Barnstable and Yarmouth spoke and asked questions. Paul Phelan, a resident of Centerville, said in an interview with the Times he was suspicious that the Horsley-Witten group could be biased in favor of the airport since they worked together to offset the spread of PFAS issuing from their property. This company, they're on the airport's payroll. So they're going to work with the airport to correct this, as opposed to us, the public. If we were paying someone, they'd work for us and maybe tell us something different, Phelan said. Also on hand was Yarmouth Town Administrator Robert Rittenor, who has said during the meeting that Yarmouth is dealing with an ecological harm as a result of the PFAS plumes that originate from the airport and other sources. He said there's no direct threat to Yarmouth's drinking water. All of us feel, especially on the Yarmouth side, with so many plumes coming down from that same direction, it is in no way comforting to know that the airport feels their plume is not the biggest, Rittenor said. Linda Bolliger, a resident of Yarmouth and president of the Hyannis Park Civic Association, said in an interview with the Times that water is a way of life on the Cape. She said the fact that so much of the water surrounding their neighborhood is potentially contaminated or contaminated is impacting that way of life indefinitely. We don't know when or if this will in our lifetime ever change, Bolliger said, referring to PFAS contamination in the surrounding area. I mean, the technology has to be there to change it, and it's not there to change it yet. Another local story on the cover. Accusation of illegal recording is filed in court by Rachel Devaney. A former born elected official has filed a lawsuit against three members of town government, saying his privacy rights were violated during a private meeting with town administrator Marlene McCollum in January in town hall. Stanley Andrews, who's the former born board of health chair, filed a lawsuit July 31st in Barnstable Superior Court against McCollum of Plymouth, Peter Mayer of Buzzards Bay, and Elise Zarkaro of Harwichport. Andrews accuses McCollum, along with Mayor, the select board chair at the time, and Zarkaro, the born human resources director, of participating in a plan to secretly tape his meeting with McCollum. The defendants in the case are named as individuals, but job titles are mentioned in the complaint itself. The town of Bourne is not named as a defendant in the case. Andrews alleges a violation of privacy, using secret electronic surveillance for political purposes, interference with the right to privacy, and civil conspiracy. Andrews alleges in the complaint that he's suffered damages including but not limited to mental anguish, emotional distress, damage to his reputation, interference with his enjoyment of daily life, and a lost sense of community. 
In the complaint, Andrews is demanding a jury trial and seeking financial compensation. Andrews resigned from the Board of Health on February 22nd, according to a letter that was forwarded to the Times by the town. Attorney Thomas Wynn of Wynn and Wynn, who represents Andrews, said that before the case was filed, a litigation was held for both Zarkaro and McCollum's cell phones was put into place so nothing could be deleted or destroyed. There's much more to come, Wynn said. He declined to comment further. The lawsuit comes after an investigation by the police department into allegations by town custodian Matthew Rose that he saw Zarkaro sitting in a nearby office recording the private meeting between McCollum and Andrews. In the police report, McCollum names Mayer as directing her actions. The investigation concluded in July. The Times reported on Rose's allegations after he spoke with a reporter in July. The town's response so far? Well, the town's currently reviewing the lawsuit, Brian Bertram, born town council, said in an email. In an email, McCollum said she was advised by Bertram to refrain from discussing the lawsuit while litigation is pending. Mayer also declined to comment about the case, but admitted he's nervous about the situation that has gotten out of hand. When litigation is over, he said he can offer his side of the story. I just want the process done right from beginning to end, said Mayer, who remains on the select board. I've worked too hard for the residents of this town for the last 30 years to have my reputation shattered because of this. Calls made to Zarkaro by the Times went unanswered. In an email, Zarkaro said she had no comment. Was Andrews secretly recorded, asks the bold subheading. Much of the basis for the lawsuit comes from town custodian Rose, who alleges he walked in on Zarkaro sitting in the dark in assistant administrator Liz Hartsgrove's office in January. Zarkaro was using her cell phone to record a conversation between McCollum and Andrews, Rose said in a previous interview with the Times. The two were meeting in McCollum's connecting office. She was sitting in the assistant town administrator's chair, wheeled away from the desk with her phone next to the door, Rose said. She turned toward me, waved her arms to tell me to not collect trash, and put her finger up to her lips to tell me to be quiet. Rose submitted a statement to Mayer, who gave the statement to Bertram. Rose's statement is also included as Exhibit A in Andrews's complaint. The complaint was provided to the Times by Wynn. Mary Jane Mastrangelo, who replaced Mayer as select board chair in May, and select board member Melissa Ferretti told the Times Mayer never gave Rose's statement to the entire board at the time of the alleged incident. In a brief telephone interview with the Times July 19th, Zarkaro said, Oh, no such recording exists. Asked why she was sitting in Hartsgrove's office in the dark, Zarkaro said she was just doing my job, quote-unquote. She declined to discuss Rose's allegations further. Bourne Police investigated Rose's allegations. Bourne Chief of Police Brandon Esip said Rose's allegations were investigated, and Esip provided a copy of the police report to the Times. In the report, Rose said he couldn't see what was on Zarkaro's phone when he entered Hartsgrove's office and couldn't confirm whether she was recording or not. Also in the police report, Rose said either later that day or the next day, Rose was in a room with Zarkaro and McCollum's secretary, Maria Simone. Rose said she made a joke. he made a joke to them, something along the lines of, sorry I ruined your sting operation. 
Rose said that Zarkaro nervously laughed, and Simone laughed and said she meant to tell Rose to stay out of Hartsgrove's office. Rose took this to mean that recording this meeting was planned. In the police report, Rose stated he didn't take video or pictures of the incident, but Rose submitted a written statement to Mayer about what he saw, and Mayer said he then submitted that statement to Bertram. Because of the pending lawsuit, Rose declined further comment. The bold subheading reads, Born Police Questioned Town Officials in the Report. In the police report, McCollum said there were contentious issues between Andrews and a town employee. The town employee wasn't named in the police report. Due to these ongoing issues, she said she was directed by Mayer to have someone else listening to the meeting. McCollum stated that Mayer came to her office four or five times prior to the meeting to repeat this to her. McCollum said she left the front door to her office open the entire time, while Zarkaro sat in Hartsgrove's office to listen and take notes. There was never a recording, and nobody was ever asked to take a recording, McCollum said to police, according to the report. In the well, we'll see. In the police report, Zarkaro admits McCollum asked her to sit in Hartsgrove's office to take notes of McCollum's meeting with Andrews. She said McCollum advised that normally she would have Hartsgrove do this, but Hartsgrove was out that day. Zarkaro stated she was sitting in Hartsgrove's office and had her personal and work cell phones out, but they were on the table and not in her hands. Officers asked Zarkaro if the lights were off, and she said yes. When asked why, she said, oh, there's no reason. Zarkaro stated that when Rose walked in, she was sitting at the table, not standing by the door. Zarkaro also said she doesn't remember Rose making any joke about a sting operation. Born police found no probable cause for Rose's claim and the case was closed, according to the police report. So why was Rose suspended for 15 days? Rose, who was also represented by Wynn, received a 15-day suspension without pay from McCollum for not following official town procedure in reporting alleged governmental infractions. In a letter to Rose from Hartsgrove, Rose is also accused of insubordination, unauthorized access, malicious lying, and conduct unbecoming for a public employee. The suspension letter was provided to the Times by Wynn. Rose is serving his suspension, which began August 1st and continues to August 24th. In Wynn's opinion, Rose is reliable and courageous for speaking out about what he witnessed. He only reported what he observed, said Wynn. Wynn also said it was inappropriate for Bourne police to investigate McCollum. The chief's a really good guy, Wynn said, but the accusations should have been kicked to the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office, he said. McCollum is the boss of the police chief, he said, so that's an impossible situation. I am guessing that there will be an awful lot more on this. It seems like Rose was a whistleblower. He saw something sketchy going on. They're all covering up, denying it, and Rose is the one who ends up getting suspended 15 days with no pay, or maybe it's with pay, I don't know. Without pay, it says. So, do you believe the guy who was cleaning up and saw something and reported it, or do you believe the people who might have been covering it up? Well, more to come. More to come, I'm sure, on that fun. Needy Fund helps a single father with their first month's rent by Rashik Tabasum Majib of the Cape Cod Times. Single father living on the Cape and Islands faced a variety of obstacles to keep his family together. 
Unable to find an affordable rental, the family moved into a motel while continuing their search for housing. And then a family member who had provided childcare could no longer do so. Fortunately, with the help of his full-time job, he found reliable childcare and a licensed daycare and a voucher to cover a portion of the cost. When a new rental home was located, he struggled to come up with enough for the first and last month's rent and security deposit. With the help of the needy fund, he was able to pay the first month's rent, allowing him to move his small family into a new stable home. The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund which in turn pays for the goods or services, a medical bill, for example, through a voucher system. No cash is ever given to needy fund recipients. On July 2nd, the Cape Cod Needy Funds, Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, kicked off its summer fundraising appeal with a goal of raising $225,000 between now and August 25th. If you need assistance from the Needy Fund, you can dial 508 778 5661, that's 508 778 5661, or 800 422 1446. That's 800 422 1446. Questions can be emailed to info at needyfund.org. It's also on Facebook and Twitter. Moving inside the paper, We have completed all the local stories on the front page, and there were four of them, very unusual, but it is the busy time of year here on the Cape. The headline reads, Police find human remains in Falmouth. It's ID'd as a missing man, by Marianne Bragg. The remains of Falmouth resident Adam Wacolder, missing since mid-June, were found Monday near his home, according to the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office Tuesday. During a search on Monday in Woods off Gifford Street in Falmouth, police officers located the remains, according to a press release from the police. Earlier Monday, Falmouth police had announced a search of Goodwill Park and surrounding Woods as part of the ongoing investigation into Wachholder's disappearance. The search was an effort to be thorough, given that the area was close to the missing man's home and where he was last seen, according to a statement the police made on Facebook. Wachholder, 44 years old at the time of his disappearance, was last seen on June 13th at his apartment on Gifford Street. Goodwill Park is at 416 Gifford Street. As of Monday evening, the area where the remains were found was under the jurisdiction of the state of, of the Office of the State Medical Examiner and the state police who were assigned to the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office, and they were assisted by Falmouth Police. The announcement of Wachholder's identification came on Tuesday. Police, along with police dogs, searched the area for about three hours before finding his remains, according to the district attorney's office. Very sad outcome to a missing person who was struggling quite a bit from what the uh, announcements said. In the Cape and Islands section, Old Vacant School Building Demolished by Marianne Bragg. In Marston's Mills, 
The demolition of the former Marston's Mills Elementary School at 2095 Main Street was undertaken in early August. School officials announced in 2012 plans to declare the former Marston's Mills Elementary School building as surplus and revert control of it back to the town of Barnstable. In March, the town sought bids for the demolition and awarded the job on April 1st to Pasquazi Brothers, Inc. for $670,559, according to town records. The property is owned by the town, and the school building was constructed in 1957, according to town records. For those of you with kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, friends with kids, you might ask this question, which is the headline, the final headline in the Cape and Islands section of the Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, August 9th of 2023. When does school start on Cape Cod and the islands this year? This is by Rashik Tabasum Majib, who's going to let you know. Students are getting themselves mentally prepared for classes on Cape Cod, Nantucket, and Martha's Vineyard as principals, teachers, and other staff prepare classrooms for the upcoming academic year. Each public school district sets its own academic calendar. Below is a district-by-district schedule of when schools will open. Also included are links to each school's district's website where school bus schedules are posted. So, when does school start on Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, and Nantucket? Well, with Barnstable Public Schools grades 1 through 12, it starts Wednesday, August 30th. Pre-kindergarten and kindergarten starts Tuesday, September 5th. For Born Public Schools, grades 1 through 12 start Tuesday, August 29th. Kindergarten begins begins on Wednesday, August 30th, and pre-kindergarten begins on Tuesday, September 5th. The D.Y. Regional School District, that's Dennis Yarmouth, starts on Wednesday, September 6th. The Falmouth Public Schools District starts on Wednesday, September 6th. Mashpee Public Schools, grades 1 through 12, start Wednesday, August 30th. Pre-K and kindergarten starts Thursday, August 31st. The Monomoy Regional School District, that's Chatham and Harwich, grades 1 through 12, starts Tuesday, September 5th. Kindergarten starts Thursday, September 7th. Nauset Regional School District, which includes Brewster, Orleans, Eastham, and Wellfleet. Grades K-12 through start Thursday, September 7th. Pre-K on Wednesday, September 13th. Provincetown Public Schools start on Tuesday, September 5th. Sandwich Public Schools start grades 1 through 12 on Tuesday, September 5th. Kindergarten starts Thursday, September 7th in Sandwich, and Pre-K starts Monday, September 11th. Truro Central School starts Tuesday at September 5th. Nantucket Public Schools, grades 1 through 12, start Tuesday, September 5th. Kindergarten starts Thursday, September 7th. Pre-K starts Monday, September 11th. And finally, Martha's Vineyard Public Schools start on Tuesday, September 5th. We are just past the midway portion of our reading today of the Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, August 9th of 2023. It's at the midway portion when we move from the uh, news in the front of the paper to a different kind of local news, to the obituaries and death notices uh, that are listed in the E-edition. The first obituary in the Cape Cod Times of August 9th is Paul E.R. de Benedetti of Falmouth, who passed on August 6th at the age of 86. 
He grew up in Cambridge. He graduated from Ringe Technical School, where in 2008, he was honored to receive the Man of the Year from the Alumni Association. After high school, his esteemed career led him into the field of chemistry. During the early years of his career, he worked for UBS Chemical, then A.E. Staley Manufacturing, and then he started Interpolymer Company with another colleague. He was granted a U.S. patent and a Canadian patent for the use of copolymers as coating adhesives. As his career continued, he assumed ownership of Naleco, Inc., in Dedham and served as CEO until his retirement. Known for his ability to adapt products or concepts in innovative ways, he was often sought for his expertise associated with polymers and later tribology. He and his wife of 46 years, Joan A.R. Benedetti, were longtime residents of Brookline, and he was a member of the Brookline Lodge of Elks, number 886. They moved to Falmouth in 2005, where they enjoyed the change of pace and beautiful local environment. He leaves his beloved and dedicated wife, Joan, as well as many family and friends. A visitation took place on Wednesday, August 9th, today, from 10 to 11.30 at Chapman Funerals and Cremations at 584 West Falmouth Highway in West Falmouth. A funeral mass followed at noon at St. Elizabeth Seton Church, 481 Quaker Road in North Falmouth, and the burial will be private. The next obituary listed in the Cape Cod Times of August 9th, Christopher Francis Cummings of Cape Cod, loving father, grandfather, brother, and son, passed away July 9th. Chris was born in his beloved town of Riverside, Rhode Island. It was love at first sight when he discovered the ocean and docks of the cove, and his love of boats and the sea was only surpassed by his love of family and friends. He proudly served his country in France as a member of the Army Corps of Engineers. Thank you, Mr. Cummings, for that service. He sparkled when telling stories about the sights in France, and he would say that everything looked like a castle. Chris eventually migrated to the Cape, where he became the consummate fisherman and Provincetown's dockmaster. He was a proud Cape Codder who loved life on boats and the ocean, but most importantly, he loved his family and friends who always felt better after spending time with him. He'll be immensely missed by everyone whose lives he touched. Say a little prayer for Chris. We love you, Dad. Graveside service was held Monday, July 17th at 1.30 p.m. in Evergreen Cemetery in Eastham. The next obituary is of Phyllis Schickel, nay Manning. Phyllis Schickel passed on July 22nd at the age of 96. She was predeceased by her three husbands, John E. Hanbury Jr., George St. Germain, and Albert E. Schickel. Affectionately known as Nanny, she is survived by her daughters and many friends and family who will miss her. Phyllis sang professionally for 30-plus years and was a snowbird between West Palm Beach and Onset Island and Boynton Beach, Florida, for 35 years. Phyllis went back to school at 50 years of age to become an LPN. She worked at St. Mary's Hospital in West Palm Beach, Florida, before she retired to Sandwich in 2003. She then volunteered at Cape Cod Hospital for the next 15 years. Funeral services will be held August 12th, at 11 a.m. at the Church of the Assumption, 28 Monmouth Road, North Hanover Township, New Jersey. 
Friends and family are invited to a viewing on Friday, August 11th from 7 to 9 p.m. at the Perrin Chief Funeral Home at 438 High Street in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Burial will be at the Mass National Cemetery on Cape Cod at a future date. Any contributions would be welcomed in Phyllis's name to Samaritan Hospice Care, 3906 Church Road in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. They lovingly cared for Phyllis for her last two years. And our final obituary in today's Cape Cod Times of August 9th is of James P. Conroy, Sr. of Mashpee, who at the age of 92 passed on August 5th. He was beloved husband of the late Elsie Conroy. James graduated from Boston Public Schools. He worked as a sales representative in automotives for many years in the Boston and Cape Cod regions until his retirement. He loved animals, especially his canine friends. He was very fond of his papa rides and spending time with his grandchildren. He loved boating on John's Pond, where he and his wife resided for many years. He was an outgoing and friendly person, and he'll be dearly missed by all who loved and knew him. A funeral mass will be celebrated at St. Jude's Chapel at Christ the King Church, 5 Job's Fishing Road in Mashpee, on Wednesday, August 16th at 10.30 a.m. The burial will be private. In lieu of flowers, any donations may be made to VNA Hospice, 434 Route 134 in South Dennis. There are a memorial. Join us for a celebration of a life well lived in loving memory of James Jim Ruberti. Saturday, August 12th, from 9 to noon, the program starts at 10 a.m., where... The Performing Arts Center at Barnstable High School, you can use the night auditorium entrance, the Performing Arts Center, the pack. What do you wear? Whatever. Ties are forbidden, though. And what's going to happen? Good things. Comedy, song, memoirs, bagpiping. Will there be donuts? Yes, and coffee. So a memorial for James Jim Ruberti on Saturday, August 12th from 9 to noon. And that concludes the obituaries, death notices, and memorials listed in today's Cape Cod Times E-Edition. Moving back into the news section of the paper, we have completed all the local news. We'll move on to the nation and world. Amazon rainforest countries gather. Summit seeks unity ahead of global talks by Fabiano Masanavi and David Biller of the Associated Press in Belém, Brazil. For the first time in 14 years, presidents of the South American nations home to the Amazon rainforest are converging to chart a common course for protection of the bioregion and to address organized crime. The summit Tuesday and Wednesday in the Brazilian city of Belém is a meeting of the Amazon Cooperation Treaty Organization, a toothless 45-year-old alliance that's met only three times before. The Amazon stretches across an area twice the size of India, and two-thirds of it lies in Brazil. Your reader has been on it. It is quite a river. It is uh, awesome. It is scary. It is awesome. It is beautiful, and it is primitive. It is all of those things. As someone who has gone to Manaus and gone down the Amazon, as it were, or up the Amazon. Whoa, 
It's quite a trip. Seven other countries and one territory share the remaining third of the Amazon. Colombia, Peru, Venezuela, Bolivia, Guyana, Suriname, Ecuador, and French Guiana. Presidents from all but Ecuador, Suriname, and Venezuela are attending. Massive destruction of the Amazon forest is a climate disaster, and all the countries at the summit have ratified the Paris Climate Accord, which requires signatories to set targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But that's about as far as their shared policy goes. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has said he hopes the Belém summit will awaken the long-dormant organization. It's never been so urgent to resume and expand that cooperation. The challenge of our era and the opportunities that arise will demand joint action, Lula said at the start of the event on Tuesday morning. It's Lula's second attempt to form an Amazon block. He tried back when the last Amazon summit was held in 2009 during his first presidency, but was joined by only one other president from the region, Bharat Jagdio of Guyana. Then French President Nicolas Sarkozy also attended. Then as now, the goal was to present a united Amazon during annual climate talks known as COP in Copenhagen. It failed. The context is totally different today, said Marina Silva, Brazil's environment and climate change minister. President Lula is very determined that this summit will not just be another event with no real outcomes for the decisions that will be announced here. Silva said the event goes beyond the climate talks and will also address how countries will prevent the Amazon from reaching a tipping point in which the former forest releases carbon dioxide out of control. According to some scientists, this will happen when 20 to 25 percent of the forest is destroyed. That resulting decline in rainfall would transform more than half of the Amazon to tropical savanna, meaning desert with immense biodiversity loss. Forest protection commitments so far have been uneven. Brazil and Colombia have pledged to stop deforestation completely by 2030, but other countries are reluctant to follow. Notable goals of the meeting include, in Brazil, Lula has said he will create 14 new indigenous territories, and he's already created six. He also said he will restore Brazil's official climate commitment, 37% lower emissions by 2025 than in 2005, which was weakened under his predecessor. But it's just a promise, and it hasn't been formalized. In Colombia, Gustavo Petro's government has laid out a 30-year strategy for reaching carbon neutrality by 2050 and reducing its greenhouse gases by 51%. In Ecuador, President Guillermo Lasso has said that he will lead his country through an ecological transition to zero carbon emissions by 2050. By 2025, the nation aims to reduce deforestation to avoid 16.5 million tons of emissions. Ecuador also hopes to create a bio-corridor that allows animals to roam over distances. Colombian President Gustavo Petro has sought to position himself as a leader in global climate efforts and protection of the Amazon. At a recent meeting in the Colombian town of Leticia, environment ministers from the eight countries agreed to come up with a joint strategy to prevent the Amazon from reaching a point of no return. Petro has also spoken of the need to shift away from hydrocarbons, one of the main causes of climate change, yet oil is one of his nation's chief exports. 
Peru is seeking not just a declaration aimed at slowing the collapse of the Amazon, but agreements to fight drug trafficking and other illegal activities. To face the threat the countries share from organized crime, Lula has announced that Brazil will create a Center for International Police Cooperation in Manaus, which is the largest city in the Amazon. The announcement underscored government's realization that isolated raids and crackdowns have been ineffective. Cross-border cooperation in the Amazon has historically been scant, undermined by low trust, ideological differences, and the lack of government presence. But budding environmental consciousness and widespread recognition of the Amazon's importance in arresting climate change has invigorated the drive for a paradigm shift. There have been encouraging signs. In 2018, Latin American nations signed the Escazu Agreement, which established the public's right to environmental information and participation in decision-making, and it protected environmentalists. However, several countries, including Brazil, haven't yet ratified it. The following year, they signed the Letitia Pact to better coordinate environmental protection. Lula said he hopes a Balium Declaration, which has already been drafted, will become the nation's shared call to arms as they move toward the Global Climate Conference in November in Dubai. Outside the official summit, some 20,000 indigenous people and others from different Amazon countries have scheduled 400 parallel events. So folks, maybe we will finally have some headway on the deforestation that's been just destroying the Amazon and the rainforest for, for decades and decades and decades. Maybe there'll be something finally done about it. We better. It's pretty important to us. The next headline in the Nation and World section reads, Rule, base, rule boosts pay for workers on U.S. jobs. In Philadelphia, Vice President Kamala Harris on Tuesday announced changes to labor rules that could give higher wages to construction workers on federal projects. In a speech in Philadelphia, Harris said the Labor Department has provided the first update in decades to the Davis-Bacon Act of 1931, a law that requires the payment of prevailing local wages on public works. Many workers are paid much less than they deserve, much less than the value of their work, Harris said. And not just by a little, in some cases by thousands of dollars a year. And that's wrong. The new rule is something of a return to the past and that it will use the definition of prevailing wage that the Labor Department previously used from 1935 to 1983, likely raising the hourly earnings of contractors and subcontractors. More than a million construction workers with jobs on roughly $200 billion worth of federally supported projects will benefit, the Democratic vice president's office said in an emailed statement. The new rule will mean thousands of extra dollars per year in workers' pockets to help put down a down payment on a home, save for retirement, or simply have more breathing room, the statement said. While workers would earn more money, Critics, such as the Associated Builders and Contractors, have said that the Davis-Bacon requirements make construction projects more expensive for taxpayers. Well, of course, those costs will be passed along. Supreme Court reinstates regulation of ghost guns by Mark Sherman in Washington. The Supreme Court is reinstating a regulation aimed at reining in the proliferation of ghost guns, which are firearms without serial numbers that have been turning up at crime scenes across the nation in increasing numbers. 
The court on Tuesday voted 5-4 to four to put on hold a ruling from a federal judge in Texas that invalidated the Biden administration's regulation of ghost gun kits. The regulation will be in effect while the administration appeals the ruling to the 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans and potentially the Supreme Court. Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined with the court's three liberal members to form the majority. Justices Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Clarence Thomas would have kept the regulation on hold during the appeals process. Neither side provided any explanation. The Justice Department had told the court that local law enforcement agencies seized more than 19,000 ghost guns at crime scenes in 2021, a more than tenfold increase in just five years. The public safety interests in reversing the flow of ghost guns to dangerous and otherwise prohibited persons easily outweighs the minor costs that respondents will incur, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prilligar, the administration's top Supreme Court lawyer, wrote in a court filing. The new rule was issued last year and changed the definition of a firearm under federal law to include unfinished parts, like the frame of a handgun or the receiver of a long gun, so they can be tracked more easily. Those parts must be licensed and include serial numbers. Manufacturers must also run background checks before a sale, as they do with other commercially made firearms. The requirement applies regardless of how the firearm was made, meaning it includes ghost guns made from individual parts or kits or by 3D printers. The rule does not prohibit people from purchasing a kit or any type of firearm. U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor in Fort Worth, Texas, struck down the rule in late June, concluding that it exceeded the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives Authority. O'Connor wrote that the definition of a firearm in federal law does not cover all the parts of a gun. Congress could change that law, he wrote. Lawyers for individual businesses and advocacy groups challenging the rule told the justices that O'Connor was right and that the ATF had departed from over 50 years of regulatory practice in expanding the definition of a firearm. We're deeply disappointed that the court pressed pause on our defeat of ATF's rule effectively redefining firearm and frame or receiver under federal law, Cody J. Wisniewski General Counsel of the Firearms Policy Coalition Action Foundation said in a statement, Regardless of today's decision, we're still confident that we will yet again defeat ATF and its unlawful rule at the Fifth Circuit when that court has the opportunity to review the full merits of our case. The Giffords Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, which is long-backed regulating ghost guns, praised the ruling. The challenged rule simply requires ghost gun kits are regulated like the guns that they are. It will save lives, David Pacino, the group's deputy chief counsel, said in a statement. To die, nearly 300,000 lose power in storms. By Endea, Yancey Bragg, Susan Miller, Tao Nguyen, and Kayla Jimenez of USA Today. More than 250,000 homes and businesses in the eastern United States were without power Tuesday after powerful thunderstorms battered the region, killing at least two people and canceling thousands of flights. 
In South Carolina, where more than 11,000 customers remained without power on Tuesday afternoon, a 15-year-old boy was killed by a falling tree as he got out of a car, according to the Anderson County Office of the Coroner. In Florence, Alabama, police said a 28-year-old man died after he was struck by lightning. More than 1,700 flights were canceled, and nearly 9,000 were delayed Monday, according to flight tracking website FlightAware. More than 2,000 flights were canceled or delayed Tuesday as the storm system brought heavy rainfall to New England. Severe thunderstorms and winds in excess of 60 miles an hour caused damage Monday in southern Pennsylvania, central Maryland, and northern Virginia, said Andrew Orison, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. The storms toppled trees, sent power lines crashing into roads and some homes, and ripped roofs from buildings, according to preliminary reports from the National Weather Service. We saw the clouds coming and could hear a rumbling in the distance, Don Tomovich, whose house was damaged, told 6ABC TV in Philly. We went into the house and we were on the first floor, and before we could blink an eye, the winds just came right back through the back of our house. Orison said there were numerous reports of golf ball-sized hail across the mid-Atlantic and flash flooding in the Baltimore metropolitan area as the storms swept through. The Knoxville Utilities Board said on X, formerly Twitter, that the damage across its service area in Tennessee was widespread and extensive and probably will take several days to repair. In Westminster, Maryland, dozens of people, including 14 children, were rescued after 34 cars were trapped for more than five hours on Route 140 by downed power lines, according to Maryland State Police. More than 29.5 million people were under tornado watches Monday afternoon, according to the Weather Service, and more than 1.1 million customers lost power as the storm struck. Orison said he wasn't aware of any confirmed reports of tornadoes, but that could change as local weather services crews conduct damage surveys. Bob Van Dillen of Fox Weather Meteorologist said he had seen more than 530 reports of wind damage in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, the Carolinas, and all the way up the eastern seaboard to northern Virginia. He said tornado damage may be seen in upstate New York, northern Virginia, eastern Kentucky, central West Virginia, and possibly North Carolina. This storm was unusual because it was so powerful, Van Dillen said. It's something you would see really usually in springtime. Lawsuit targets white supremacists. Teacher details assault and wants to bankrupt group by Mark Pratt in Boston. A black teacher and musician who says members of a white nationalist hate group punched, kicked, and beat him with metal shields during a march through Boston last year sued the organization on Tuesday. Charles Morell III of Boston was in the area of the BPL, the Boston Public Library, to play a saxophone July 2nd of 22 when he was surrounded by members of the Patriot Front and assaulted in a coordinated, brutal, and racially motivated attack, according to the lawsuit filed in federal court in Boston. Morell was taken by ambulance to the hospital for treatment of lacerations, some of which required stitches, the suit says. As a result of this beating, Mr. Morell sustained physical injuries to his face, head, and hand, all of which required medical attention. Mr. Morell also continues to suffer significant emotional distress to this day as a result of the incident, the suit says. Among other harms, those physical and emotional injuries have adversely affected Mr. Morell's ability to earn a living as a musician. 
He's been plagued by severe anxiety, mental anguish, invasive thoughts, and emotional distress, including but not limited to persistent concern for his physical safety and loss of sleep. And he routinely has nightmares and flashbacks, according to the suit. The defendants are the Patriot Front, its founder, Thomas Rousseau, and multiple John Doe's. Emails seeking comment have been sent to attorneys who have either represented Patriot Front in the past or represent the group in pending litigation. Morell, who has a background teaching special ed, said in a telephone interview with the Associated Press on Monday that the lawsuit is about holding Patriot Front accountable, helping his own healing process, and preventing anything similar from happening to children of color, like those he teaches. Because I'm a teacher, because I come from special education, I'm I'm filing this suit so that even if one of them has a safer sidewalk to walk on, the work that I'm doing will have been much worth it, Morell said. The march in Boston by about 100 members of the Texas-based Patriot Front was one of its so-called flash demonstrations that it holds around the country. In addition to shields, the group carried a banner that said, Reclaim America, as members marched along the Freedom Trail and passed some of the city's most famous landmark. They were largely dressed alike in cocky pants, dark shirts, hats, sunglasses, and face coverings. They looked like Nazis. Morell said he had never heard of the group before the confrontation, but believes he was targeted. He cited the tone of their voices and the slurs they used when he encountered them. Patriot Front trains members to commit acts of violence, according to the suit. What happened to Mr. Morrell was no accident, the suit says. For years, the Patriot Front has publicly and privately advocated for the use of violence against those who disagree with its express goal of creating an entirely white United States. The goal of the lawsuit isn't just justice and accountability, said Licha Niendo, the chief legal officer at Human Rights First, which is backing Morell in the lawsuit, but to bankrupt Patriot Front. Our goal is to decimate this extremist group, she said, and bring a national spotlight to the dangers of their extremist ideology. It's a similar tactic used against multiple white supremacist groups involved in the deadly Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, which resulted in a $26 million verdict. That bankrupted and marginalized the leading hate groups that were involved in Charlottesville, and it really pulled back the curtain through the discovery process on how these groups operate, said Amy Spitelnik, the senior advisor on extremism for Human Rights First. No one has been charged in connection with the attack on Morell, 36 years old, and the investigation remains open, according to a spokesperson from the Suffolk DA's office. The suit, which alleges, among other things, civil rights violations, assault and battery, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, seeks a jury trial and unspecified damages. Founded after the Unite the Right rally, Patriot Front has a manifesto calling for the formation of a white ethno-state in the United States, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center's website. Its members post flyers and stickers, put banners on buildings or overpasses, and even perform acts of public service designed to maximize propaganda value, the SPLC said. Also active online, the Patriot Front is one of the nation's most visible white supremacist groups whose members maintain that their ancestors conquered America and bequeathed it to them and no one else, according to the Anti-Defamation League. Five members of the group were sentenced to several days in jail for conspiring to riot at a Pride event in Idaho last year. A jury found him guilty of the riot charge after they were accused of planning to riot at the Kerr Daleen in Idaho LGBTQ plus pride event. 
A total of 31 Patriot Front members, including one identified as its founder, were arrested June 11th of 22 after someone reported seeing people loading themselves into a U-Haul van like a little army at a hotel parking lot in Cure d'Alene, police said at the time. Police said they found riot gear, a smoke grenade, shin guards, and shields in the van. And with that disturbing news about this hate group that's extremist and still running around the streets of different cities, we have come to the end of our reading of the Cape Cod Times, dated Wednesday, August 9th of 2023. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other. Bye for now.